Alrighty. Well, we're going to go ahead and get started uh, tonight. Um, uh, Mike is a little under the weather, so I'm promising to behave myself and still remain seated. So (laughs) did not cause another issue. Um, and, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go from there. Um, and, uh, tonight, uh, uh, I'll, I'll kind of explain myself a little bit first before we get into it. Um, there was a conversation that was, uh, being had downstairs and something was talking up about, or somebody was talking about um, some, you know, memorable lines from a movie and have had impact in a person's life and things like that. And, um, you know, saying certain things. And uh, I got thinking about it. I made a couple of comments and I got thinking about, you know, that would be something that would be good to, to, to kind of pull out, dust off, and uh, just kind of go over uh, about the influence of the Word of God in, in, uh, in life. Um, many of people have, have talked about, uh, influential books. If you go and you Google most influential book written, uh, you're going to get a litany of all sorts of stuff, you know, uh, depending on who that person is that put the list together or what group, you know, people are going to say, number one, origin of species, you know, Darwin. And I'm like, barf. Uh, I, I read that and I was like, he didn't even know what he was talking about. It was just a bunch of questions and hypothesis that never came to any real fruition and everybody took it at science and truth and, and value. And other people will say, well, the, the Iliad or the Odyssey or, um, uh, you know, certain works by John Locke or, um, they'll say things like the Quran. All of these, but if you get somebody that is an honest um, person that is in the literary world, that looks at the, uh, with objectivity, what book has influenced the most people uh, throughout history, um, it's the Bible. Um, from its very beginnings, uh, when it began to be penned, uh, you have the influential work of the book of Job. Uh, you have the influential works of uh, the, 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 the books of the law that Moses penned. Um, all of these that, that begin to go through the process of what God has said that we know as the word of God. And even in, when it's, uh, uh, you know, all collected together and put together for us in the, the, the way that we have it now, um, it still has a huge amount of influence. It's had a huge amount of influence in, 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 in if you will, in a in a worldwide sense, not just in a sense of uh, of um, the uh, the you know Western cultures or or something of that nature. And some people will argue that, and they'll say, "Well, no, the the, the Bible is only a Western culture book," and, and that's not truly the case. Um, because if you go into the word of God, you find these people were not Westernized in any way, shape or form. They were Jews and they were Gentiles over in the Middle East. 
there were there were Arabs, there were uh, Turks, there were uh, um, you know uh, Aegeans uh, from Greece. You've got uh, you know the people from Italy and and North Africa and all all over the place over there. They, they weren't Westernized as what we would think today with colonization and Western culture and Western morality and things of that nature. When you work in the legal world, you find exactly how influential the Bible is. Uh, the, the Bible is very influential when it comes to everything regarding uh, law. Uh, it, it, it's put up there as one of the, if not the most, influential book on how societies create laws. And that makes sense according to Romans chapter 1 and 2. It makes total sense because that's the way that God had, has, has made mankind. So we see that there's, there's a distinct way that God puts all of this together for a purpose. And if you're ever in, involved in a discussion with an individual, and uh, I don't necessarily want to say debates because sometimes you really need to avoid those because they just, nobody ever wins debates. It's just a matter of uh, who, who's got uh, uh, more points than the other person type situation. Um, and, and, it, and it's ridiculous. I just, I, I just find that ridiculous. But uh, debates really don't mean much. But there are a lot of things that we find uh, from the Word of God that we can counter when somebody says, well, the Bible is just, you know, a, 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 a bunch of things written by men and, you know, it, it's outdated and it's, it doesn't have any influence and, you know, it's, uh, it's not what people think it is. Well, there's arguments that the Lord puts in here that clearly define what the Word of God is and what the Word of God does and the reach of the Word of God. In today's day and age and culture, English is the most popular language. It's the language of communication. It's a language of business. Uh, if if uh, the, the English language did not exist, there would be a lot more difficulty in uniformity of translation uh, from one one uh, um, uh, in, uh, from one language to another language, uh, it, it's very difficult, uh, especially when when there's you know different structures of how pl- verb placement and noun placement work and and uh, different sounds and uh, characters that are words, not just letters that form words and. So it's very, very, very different. And English is, is, is a language that, that God has used uh, historically to further the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was once asked one time uh, if I was to be a foreign missionary to a foreign land where they did not have the scripture in their language, uh, what would be the first step I would do to, to uh, address that issue? I said the very first step I would do is I would teach them English. Teaching them English is a lot easier than trying to translate something into their language that they may not understand. Uh, there are phrases in here that do not fit other cultures. But when you put it in the English language, it makes sense. Um, so we, we have to be careful about that, about what God has given us. So I want to look tonight, we're going to have a little bit of fun, a little bit of fun Bible study. We're going to look at phrases that are commonly used in everyday conversations. 
And I, I, I challenge you, just kind of keep your, your ears open when you're talking and you're listening and watch how many times these passages are said by unbelievers. By unbelievers. The Bible says that they are going to be without excuse. I, I just, I, I can just see it now in my imagination being as vivid as it is. God sitting up there and he, 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 he turns on the Blu-ray player and, and he's got a recording of some guy that has denied God's existence. He's like, well, God, I never knew. I never knew. I never knew. And he brings up that little cliche phrase that they say. And he says, where do you think that came from? I don't know. And he takes him to the passage and the chapter and the verse. And he says, it came from my word. You're using my word and you didn't even know it. It's a very condemning thing. It's a very condemning thing. Let's go ahead and pray. We'll get started tonight. And uh, hopefully we'll just have a little bit of fun tonight in the word of God and just enjoy what... Uh, what God's given us. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for this time. Thank you again, Lord, for an opportunity to just study your word. Pray, Lord, that our hearts tonight would just be lifted up uh, by understanding uh, your perfectness, your preservation, and the inerrancy of your word. And that, Lord, that uh, we'd see these and be able to use them as an opportunity to bring you glory, honor, and praise, to tell somebody about Jesus Christ, to tell somebody about the need for a Savior, to tell somebody how they can have salvation through you and through you alone. Pray, Lord, that you just be with me, strengthen me tonight, that uh, this would just be pleasing unto you and with everything that we say and do. And this I ask in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's start off with one of the 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 uh, the, the ones that just kind of sticks in our, our, our minds a little bit. Let's go over to the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul makes a statement. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4 says, Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. Look at this phrase, ye are fallen from grace. That very first phrase that I want to look at is, is the fall from grace. This is often referred to, uh, meaning that it's, uh, somebody being told that they have been in a position of high elevation or a position in stature that is to be admired and that person has done something in which they are now looked at unfavorably. We obviously see that happened over there in, in, in Genesis chapter three when man fell. And that's the reference that we talk about, man falling. And here he references the, to the, the Galatians specifically, fallen from grace. Fallen from grace. Meaning they've fallen away from those works that God has done in their life, and they've gone back to things that are humanistic and fleshly in nature. And they've fallen away from the things of God. And, and, and again, people in the media will use that. They're, they're talking about it now. They're talking about, uh, well, you know, here, here's Donald Trump announcing his first, uh, uh, you know, be the first one to announce that he's going to be a, a Republican candidate uh, uh, for the presidential election of 2024. And everybody is talking about how he's fallen from grace now with the Republicans. And I've seen that word used so many times. 
so many times that he's fallen from grace. Meaning that he's fallen away from those things that, 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 that had first seemed to, to be great, but now people are like, ah, I don't know. That's one phrase. Another one is, uh, if, if you will, you go over to Genesis chapter 3, talking about that fall. We're going to flip around a little bit in your Bible tonight, so just bear with me. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19 um, says, In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread, till thou return to the ground, for out of it thou was taken, for dust thou art, and dust thou shalt return. thou return. We've seen this multiple times and heard it multiple times where people have said, well, I'm going to, to you know, uh, put in some effort and people talk about it by the sweat of a person's brow. By the sweat of a person's brow. We also see another phrase in here where you're talking about dust to dust, which is often used in funerals. And, and, and uh, we begin to realize that, that we see that God has integrated his word into common culture and common usage even among us as 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 gentiles and and english speaking people and and these are even phrases that are taught in english speaking classes or to to, to non english speaking individuals to be used so that it sounds less formal God is putting it right here saying the sweat of the brow and people talk about, you know, uh, the sweat of the brow and their labor and what they do. Here's one that I always have liked. If you turn over to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, and in verse 20, it says, curse not the king. No, not in thy thought. And curse not the rich in thy bedchamber. For the bird of an air shall carry the voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. A little bird told me. That one I haven't heard a lot. I've heard it uh, used with uh, some people that uh, uh, that are uh, a little further along than I am in the age brackets. But I will tell you this, it's still a common phrase. Well, how did you find that out? Well, a little bird told me. A little bird told me. Now, there's a lot of doctrinal, uh, if you will, ter- uh, terror in that verse uh, about birds communicating and something that have the wings communicating, something that you just said in secret. Uh, so there's a lot of things talking about unclean spirits going about speaking things that they uh, that they hear. That's why you got to be careful with your words. You never know who's listening. You might be alone and sit there and think to yourself, well, this person's never going to hear it. And and then they go off on that person and just uh, talk bad about them. And then somehow, some way, that person figures it out and finds out about it. And somebody heard it somehow, some way. And they're like, how in the world? I was alone. I was alone. You got to be careful. There is a spirit world, folks. And it's scary. Yeah, we steer clear of it. The one that I always uh, liked was uh, 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 old as Methuselah. Old as Methuselah. Somebody would start talking about a person or an individual and say, oh man, they're as old as Methuselah. I'm like, do you realize how old Methuselah was? <laughs> Over the book of Genesis it says he was 969 years old. The oldest recorded person in history. Oldest recorded person in history. 
And it irritates me that the people today in their form of history, they're like, well, we don't count those people in the Bible because we really don't know if that was really accurate. Oh, come on. Historical documentation, but then they sit down and they take something that was written down on a piece of papyrus over in the book of Egypt, and they take that as gospel. I'm like, come on. No, you just don't want to talk, talk about the historical accuracy of the Bible. That's the issue. And that's one of the issues behind it is somebody says, well, old is Methuselah. And you're like, really? I don't think it was that old. I don't even think it was close to that old. But it's often used talking about that where, you know, we've, we've got a, a, a limited amount of time, um, in this earth. And, you know, the Bible talks about it and says you've got 70 years, give or take. Not a lot of time. Not a lot of time. But old as, old as Methuselah. The one that I always laugh at is because this, ah, oh man, you talk about this being used in the business world, the golden calf. Turn over to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. In business, this one, one ends up getting used a lot. Because you start talking about this in, in, in Exodus chapter 32, and the people are obviously... Not content with the fact that Moses has been up there for a little bit. They come to Aaron and say, make us a God. Uh, in verse 2, and Aaron said unto them, break off your ear, uh, the, the gold earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And Aaron received them, uh, at, their, received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it into a molten calf. And said, these be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. What do they do? They fall down and they worship this golden calf. That golden calf was sacred to them. That golden calf was important to them. That golden calf was something that uh, wasn't to be trifled with. Well, tell you, right now in this day and age, people still use that in the business sense when we start getting into people's pet projects. We're like, well, we need to be careful because that's, you know, that's, 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 you know, somebody's such and such. That's, that's their golden calf. We don't want to touch with that. We don't want to mess with that. And I'm just sitting there thinking, yeah, we do. <laughs> we want to tear that critter down and burn it. Draw in the straw water and then get them drink it, right? Because that's what Moses did. So whatever somebody says that in, uh, in in the business world, even though they might be using it incorrectly, I'm always sitting there thinking, well, that means it's open season on this guy's project. <laughs> All right, let's go to town. Let's take it down. But, you know, again, people are talking about they're going to protect it. They they, they want to, it, it's, it's of importance to them. And you know what that means? It just means that they love that thing. They love that golden calf more than they loved God. Well, the same thing happens when we use that as an example. And people say, hey, that's a golden calf. And sometimes people got a lot of golden calves in their life. And they need to be torn down. Need to be torn down. Ground up, burnt. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Go over to Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus chapter 24. Uh, Leviticus chapter 24 uh, you, you, you've got this passage of scripture, and, and I guarantee you, most people have absolutely no idea what this means. And they use it as, if you will, the law of, of uh, retribution, as it's almost, uh, uh, often called, or law of retaliation. 
Um, and in verse 19 in Leviticus chapter 24, it says, If a man cause a blemish in his neighbor, as he hath done, so shall it be done to him. Breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and shall cause a blemish in, in a man, so shall it be done to him again. And it's like, okay, well, equal, you know, equality. And people take that and they, and, and, and they want to, they use that as a justification for stealing from God. And because it, it's his vengeance. It's not ours. It's not ours. But it's a common phrase that is used today. Somebody does you wrong, what is it? It's eye for an eye, right? Somebody slaps you, you're like, oh, I get to return slap, right? Well, go over to the book of Matthew, and Jesus Christ says, not so fast. Not so fast. Matthew chapter 5, he makes it very clear. He says, yeah, it's been said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And he says, but I got something better. How about you turn the other cheek? Wait, what? That's not a concept that, that, that people understand in this day and age. And the problem is, is they don't understand what it's talking about here in the law. And what it is, is it's talking about coming and making things right, rest, restoring. Restoring. Person willingly giving of themselves. Compensation for the eye, compensation for the breach, compensation for the tooth. Coming and making things the way that they're supposed to be. A lot of that is still today in, in the legal world and, and in the insurance world for that matter. Somebody, somebody smacks into your car. The insurance company is, has the right, or excuse me, has the authority to, to make it right for you. To, to put you to pre-loss condition. Pre-loss condition. Part of the problem was, is the nation of Israel was so caught up with the eye for an eye and that letter of the law that they missed out on the intent of what was being done. And they were so taking that law of retaliation to, to the point of where, you know, of ridiculousness that Jesus Christ he walks in there and says, you, you don't even understand the concept. How about this? How about you just suffer yourself to be defrauded? Uh, and that, that that doesn't sell well with a lot of people. You know, the the macho men, you know, somebody punches them, it's like, well, I get to return fire, right? Mm, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't get self-defense. I'm not saying that. It's not going to go that far. But I understand, you know, people get caught up in the pettiness of things. And that was the problem. Pharisees were so caught up in the pettiness that they lost sight of God. They uh, they got so caught up in the eye for an eye that they lost sight of who told them that. Who gave them that authority? Scapegoat. Over there here in the book of Leviticus, you've got again another situation. We've talked about this recently. uh, Where there's a, a, a passage where they go through and they start using these goats and and uh, this is often used. This is a common phrase that is often used, scapegoat. Uh, I've heard it used so many times in business meetings, I've lost track. Somebody will say, well, I'm not going to be made a scapegoat for that. 
Or somebody says, well, you're just trying to use me as a scapegoat. Well, not really. The scapegoat is uh, a situation where there was two goats and one was, uh, um, um, one was killed and the other one was sent out in the wilderness. The sins were placed upon the goat and it was turned off into the wild and it would escape and run away. Not come back any longer. Sin would flee. And that was the intent, that was the idea behind it. And today, it's still used in common everyday vernacular when people talk about trying to blame somebody else. It's for somebody to take the blame. Well, somebody already took the blame for us on the cross, so we've got that, praise God. How about this one? Have you ever been in a intense moment of fellowship, as Tim would call it, and the phrase, you're putting words in my mouth? Anybody ever use those phrases? You turn over to the book of 2 Samuel. Ever wondering where that came from? Uh, 2 Samuel chapter uh, 14. 2 Samuel chapter 14. Uh, interesting little scenario. Uh, I'll let you read it at some other point in time, but, uh, um, uh, here's Joab. He shows up and, uh, he fetches this woman in verse two. Um, and it says, Joab sent to, to, uh, Tekoa and fetched thence a wise woman and said unto her, I pray thee, feign thyself to be a mourner and put on, uh, now mourning apparel and anoint not thyself with oil, but be as a woman that had a long time mourned for the dead and come to the king and speak on this manner unto him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. You ever begin arguing with an unbeliever and they're like, you know, I don't believe in the word of God. I don't believe that. And then you say something, you're like, oh no, you're putting words in my mouth. Oh, really? Now look, these aren't gotcha verses. This isn't a gotcha situation. But it's something that really points out the, the, the magnitude of when God says they are without excuse. That little simple phrase right there. It, it comes from scripture. It comes from scripture. The writing is on the wall. Again, another business term. Maybe you've heard it somewhere else or something of that nature, but I hear it a lot in the business world. And people will sit there in the meetings and they'll be like, well, you know, that customer, I don't know, the writing's on the wall. I'm just sitting there going, mm-hmm. <laughs> Daniel chapter 5, Daniel chapter 5. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 5. <clears throat> uh there's another phrase here in Daniel that, that, that we'll get to in this same passage. Uh, but, uh, Daniel chapter five, and you've got, uh, this king that uh, is there and, uh, um, he, uh, he, uh, Belshazzar, um, and he's getting judgment proclaimed to him. It's not good news. When the writing's on the wall, it generally means that something bad is about to happen. Because what we find here in Daniel chapter 5, and um, let's see here, in verse uh, verse 5, it says, In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand, and rolled over against the candlestick, 
upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, the king saw the part of the hand uh, that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him. So the joints of his loins were loosened and his knees smote one against another. Knocking on the knees. Could you imagine that? Have you ever been so afraid that your knees knock together like that? I'm sorry, but if a hand comes out of nowhere and starts writing on the wall, yeah, that's going to, that'll do it to you. That'll do it to you. And there's a whole, re, you know, a whole things about what has been written here, and and we'll we'll, we'll kind of get to that if we get to that point. But but I want to point this out that that he saw that hand, he saw what was writing, and what was it doing? It was writing on the wall. And what was it? It was God's proclamation to Daniel or uh, to to Belshazzar that uh, he was uh, he was in big trouble. That uh, the Medes were going to come, and they were going to overthrow that kingdom. And sure enough, in verse 30, it says, In that night uh, was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain. And then Darius the, uh, the Midian took the kingdom, being about three score and two years old. Comes in there and just takes over. In a way that they didn't expect. They were too busy partying. Things like this happened and, you know, they, they totally discounted what... Uh, what Nebuchadnezzar had had proclaimed in the previous uh, uh, chapters. I mean, all of these things, it just, it's amazing. It's amazing to think about. Writing on the wall. Skin of my teeth. Has anybody ever used that? When's the last time you, you actually looked at the skin on your teeth? Right. I don't think that's skin on my teeth. I think that's a taco. You know, you're trying to figure out what that is. Turn over the book of Job. The book of Job, Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19. Skin of your teeth is your enamel coating. The way that God created the human body. Well, it's called enamel. You tell God that. He called it skin. It's like trying to correct him. Well, it's not really a whale. It was a fish. Well, it's not really a fish. It's a whale. God can use those interchangeably. Why? Because he made it. It's a whale and a fish at the same time. It's a whale fish. It's a fish whale. Whatever you want to call it. Swims in the sea. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't come up on dry land unless, well, you're Jonah. And in chapter 19 of, uh, of the book of Job, in verse uh, 20, it says, My bone cleaveth to my skin and to my flesh. I am escaped with the skin of my teeth. Well, that's an interesting little phrase. Where does that come from? The word of God. Also, the skin and bones, that's the first part of it. You ever have somebody say and look at that and they say, Oh man, you're skin and bones. Skin and bones. So they, apparently that's what the doctors want to see with me, skin and bones. Um, <clears throat> make it easier for them, I guess. I don't know. But the end result is, is uh, we see phrases that are often frequently used. Skin of my teeth means you just, you just, you just skated by. You got, you just missed it. And it would have been bad. Skin of my teeth. Skin of my teeth. Let's go back over to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5. 
Should have told you to stay there. I didn't realize we were going to get there that close or get back to it that quickly. Daniel chapter 5, what was written on the wall was uh, written in, uh, um, you know, in a language that um, that uh, Daniel was interpreting. And uh, he he comes through and he begins to describe what was written on the wall. And in Daniel chapter 5 and verse 25, and this is the writing that was written, Mene Mene Tekil Ufarinson. And this interpretation of the thing, Mene, meaning God numbered thy kingdom and finished it. That's scary. Uh, Tekil, thou art weighed in the balances and are found, and art found wanting. Weighed and found wanting. Hmm. I've even heard that used. Perez, the kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. He describes it right there. Weighed in the balance. Weighed in the balance. Right there in verse 27, thou art weighed in the balances and are found wanting. God is taken and he says, oh, okay, you want to be judged on what you've done? Okay, let's go ahead and put all your good in there and let's see how much it adds up. Uh, it looks like you're a little short. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. If we were to be put and weighed in the balances, we'd come up short, wouldn't we? We've done a lot of, a lot of evil. Try to think that, well, we really haven't done anything too bad. Well, some of us have and some of us haven't. Let's not go around judging sin based on the degrees of man, but let's judge it according to God's. Wages of sin is death. So even if you sinned once with one little white lie, sorry, you're going to be found wanting. And the great thing about that is, is that when we see those balances and we realize it's, there's no way we can meet that, and then God places what Jesus Christ has done in His grace and His mercy and His tenderness and His compassion and His forgiveness and puts that on the balance, we're not found wanting because He has completed it all. It's a matter of receiving that. That's such a great thing. But weighed in the balance, that comes from a scriptural passage. Have you ever been at your wit's end? Have you been at your wit's end recently? We better do with them today. I'm getting a testimony time over here. From <laughs> yeah, we frequently are found at our wits end. Turn over the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 107. I, I, I like this one. This one is used a lot, isn't it? Wits end. Wits end. And I always like, well, what's the wit? You know, sometimes we like to think of ourselves as witty. You know, that person that always has that little pithy remark to come back at a person, right? They say something and they just got the right way to just say it right back to them and just cut them down. Well, your wit is also part of your mentality and your capability and your ability. And you realize that your mind only has a certain limit. It has an end, right? Yep. <laughs> Another testimony. <laughs> 
there are days that, you know, I just sit down at work and about halfway through the day and I'm like, well, I just exhausted every mental resource that I have and I keep getting file errors and it's like, I'm done. I'm done. Psalm chapter 107. And if you come down here to, uh, um, uh, we'll see here. Where is it? Uh, My eyes got a little bit blurry here. Um, in verse uh, 26, it says, They mount up uh, to heaven. They go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distress. Wow. They're at their wit's end. They don't know what to do. They can't handle it anymore. When a person's at their wit's end, well, what do you do with that? And somebody says, look, I'm just at my wit's end. Okay, then you need to cry to the Lord. Psalm 107, 27, 28. They're like, what are you talking about? Well, here, let me read it to you. The opportunity to give encouragement from Scripture. And they'll look at that and they'll go, that has nothing to do with what I'm doing. Well, you just said you were at your wit's end. Well, that's not what I meant. Well, then mean what you say. Good way to start another argument, right? Amen. Uh, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, since we're in the neighborhood. Another one that is, uh, is always good. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. So doth a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. I've got a passage, uh, uh, or uh, not passage, but a message talking about folly. Folly is an interesting thing. You go over to Psalm, uh, I think it's Psalm 87, if I remember correctly, if I remember my notes. Psalm chapter 87, over there, it starts talking about uh, peace. And and it's great because it talks about peace and, you know, righteousness, kissing each other and truth, all being necessary with the righteousness and things like that. But before that, it talks about uh, God granting peace. But it says that they wouldn't listen and they returned to their folly. Folly is a very, very weird thing. Uh, folly, folly essentially is, and I'm not trying to preach that message, uh, but, uh, but folly is just an absolute absurd action that is sinful. You just look at a, somebody and you go, seriously, that was your decision making process. And you want to utter the words, but then you refrain your lips because you don't want to be a fool yourself. You want to utter, and maybe the thought passes through on the train of thought, you're an idiot. Moron. Stupid head. Whatever it is. But you look at that person and you just go, what were you thinking? That's folly, okay? That's folly. And you're like, you couldn't have gotten any farther from the Word of God if you tried. That's folly. But here he's he's talking about, you know, how folly uh, will really mess up a person's reputation with wisdom. But he refers to it as dead flies in ointment. Dead flies in ointment. That's just a nasty thing. You know, flies are, flies are a common thing in the Middle East. I've told you the story about the, the one pastor that went over there and he enjoyed the raisin bread so much over there in uh, Egypt. He thought it was the best raisin bread he'd ever had. And he's like, this is just, there's something about it. It's just good. 
And then the Egyptian natives looking at him going, <laughs> those aren't raisins. That's fly that got flies that got in the dough and they got baked. You ate that? Really? He's like, <laughs> it's not raisin bread. <clears throat> take, a, take a closer look. It's got wings and legs. So flies are a big issue. Flies are a big problem. Flies is always a uh, type of sin in scripture as you find more and more as you go through it. But he does, it's a fly in the ointment. A fly in the ointment. A phrase that is still used today saying there's a problem with what's going on. There's a little problem that is causing a big stink, a fly in the ointment. Imperfection, a flaw. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. I remember my human resources teacher using this phrase. Uh, Mark chapter uh, 6 and um, here we've got the situation. John the Baptist is in prison. Uh, here comes this woman and uh, um, is uh, goes ask her mother, like, what, what should I ask? And the king said, he, you know, he's gonna, Herod's going to give me whatever he wants. You know, it could be half the kingdom, could be anything. And, uh, you know, just the hatred for this one person was so much. In uh, uh, verse uh, 25, this is what she asked for. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. You ever heard that phrase, head on, uh, you know, head on a platter? That's gross. That's gross. You want to talk about moral depravity? That's gross. You know, people walk in and you've got that little glass case over it to keep the flies off it. And people are like, oh, what's that? Oh, that's John the Baptist's head. Ew. What does that show? It shows power. That's what she wanted. That's what was desired. I remember human resources talking about that, saying, you know, you get some of these HR people and they go in there and something's happened and something has occurred and there's a big HR incident and he, he warned us and cautioned us. He says, if you ever get to a point of where you're in the HR field or in your HR manager, he says, don't become one of those people as you start going around looking for heads on the platter. I remember sitting there thinking, I know that analogy. <laughs> people today do. They know it is that. They know what it stands for. But they don't know where it came from. They don't understand where it came from. You ever been asked in a job to go the extra mile? Chevron even has it as their their kind of catchphrase. The extra mile. We go the extra mile for you. Go over to the book of uh, Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. Under Roman law, if a Roman citizen came with somebody that was a non-citizen, and many times if it was a case of a, a Roman soldier coming up to a non-citizen um, or even a citizen of Rome, they could ask that person to say, I want you to carry my armor, my rock for a mile. They had the authority to do that because of the position of authority that they held. And they could come and they say, I want you to take this and I want you to walk a mile. Take my stuff, walk a mile. Take my stuff, walk a mile. Take my stuff, walk a mile. 
And we find here in, um, in Matthew chapter 5 and in verse uh, 41, Jesus Christ says this as a testimony and as a witness. He says, and whosoever cometh, uh, com- whoever so shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Go the extra mile. Go the extra mile. That's a commandment of Christ. Why? Because it's a witness. It's a testimony. Chapter 5 has a lot to deal with the testimony of the nation of Israel. Israel was so self-centered, selfish, inwardly focused that they couldn't see anything. And he's trying to teach them. He says, look, you want to get into the kingdom of heaven? You want that, you want that physical, literal kingdom to come? Start acting like a real child of God. Start having care and compassion for people. And uh, it's a testimony. It's a witness. Some people just do their job and do their job, right? They do it to the letter of the job. Um, People used to call them uh, uh, 501 employees. Meaning that uh, when 5 o'clock came around, they punched out, and at 5.01, you couldn't find them. They were gone. They were gone. Nowadays, I guess that kind of explains a little bit about Twitter. You know, I, 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 honestly, I don't know what to believe out of coming out of that mess. But the things that people have been describing that these individuals had, you know, software engineers having a four-hour work week. Getting paid a hundred something thousand dollars. Where's that job? Really, seriously? Yeah, David's in the back. I want that one. <laughs> I gotta have a lot of time to go play and do whatever I want to do. And they did. And they just do what? They just hang around and just you know f- four hours a week, not even four hours a day. Four hours a week. Spend doing nothing. Whether that's true or not, I have no idea. But, you know, it exemplifies the current works, the state of work environment in, 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 in the, in the, you know, workforce today. Work, the work environment is just completely, you know what? People don't want to do it because what? Good work is often rewarded with what? More work. Well, isn't that a scriptural principle? If you're faithful in little, God will make you faithful in much. Why are we trying to get out of what God's principles are? Work hard and God rewards you. You're like, well, it's more work. Well, isn't the one that God does the promotion? Aren't you doing it under the Lord? Or are you doing it for the paycheck? Got to judge all things if you're going to be spiritual. Like we talk about this morning in Sunday school. Go the extra mile. Wolves in sheep's clothing. Oh man, that one is used so much today. So much today. Wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, I mean, they even have little cartoons about it, right? You know, I remember seeing some of the Looney Tunes and, you know, here's this, uh, uh, this wolf or was, was it, I guess it was Wiley e. Coyote, you know, um, you know, dressing up and tried to dress up as one of the sheep and the sheep, uh, sheep dog found him and punched his lights out and things like that. Cause you know, that's the way that you want to teach your children how to solve situations. 
<laughs> yeah, t- <laughs> go, you go back and watch Looney Tunes and you go, how did I not turn out that I'm in jail? I mean, he just, <laughs> you know, just the stuff that they, they, they're there. Matthew chapter seven, a couple chapters over. Matthew chapter seven, verse uh, 15. And some of it you're like, I would never let my children watch this. And our parents are like, yeah, that's fine. It'll be all right. <laughs> Drop them on their head a couple of times. They're okay. They're good to go. You know, uh, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. That is a phrase that is used with such commonality today that if you were to ask a person where they got that from, they would have no idea. But you can easily say they got it from Jesus Christ. They got it from Jesus Christ. Well, I don't believe in Jesus Christ. Then why are you using the words that he spoke? Came from somewhere. Came from somewhere. He, in Matthew chapter 15, another one, uh, you know, when somebody is uh, doing something that they don't know how to do, and uh, they're trying to teach somebody else that doesn't know how to do it either, what do we call that? Blind leading the blind. Matthew chapter 15 and verses 13 through 14. He says, uh, um, wait, that's not it. Is it? Yes, verse 15, yes. Or 14, yes. I, I was reading verse 15. And I said, and then answered Peter on him, declare unto this parable. I'm like, what? <laughs> yep, there we go. <clears throat> Verse 13, he says, But he answered, said, Every plant which is, uh, which my, uh, heavenly father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be lead, blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall in the ditch. You ever have somebody try to do that? And there you are. You're pulled over the side of the road. You got the hood up and some guy pulls up and he thinks he knows everything about that car. Stranded on the side of the road. I'm just waiting for something like that to happen with my soul. My EV. Pull over the side of the road, put the hood up. Somebody comes over. Some guy gets out of the truck. What you got there? I bet you it's probably, you know, the ignition or the, you know, inject fuel. What is that? (laughs) Why are the cables orange? Why are there so many of them? Where are the tubes? Where are the hoses? (laughs) Where's the fan? You're like, don't run the same way there. (laughs) Totally different. Totally different. But, uh, you know, I, you know, I used to be able to change my own oil and change uh, spark plugs and change radiators and change, you know, I do basic mechanic stuff. But that was on a Volvo, 1975 Volvo. You open up the Volvos today and not only are they mostly electric or hybrid and you look at it, everything's covered with this new little fangled, you know, engine cover so the engine doesn't get dirty. Man, I remember being in the engine compartment coming out and going, wow, I didn't know I could get that dirty that quickly. And, uh, you know, you, you lift that thing up and you take the cover off and you, there's like so many tubes and wires and everything else and computers and, and you're just like, I don't even know what to touch. And somebody else comes and all they know is in, you know, 1975 Volvo, they're not going to have any idea. It's going to be blind leading the blind. You're going to be guessing and something's going to break. Something's going to break. Um, Matthew chapter 27. 
Matthew chapter 27. This one's familiar. You're probably very familiar with it. And in verse 24, what is happening here is Pilate, Pilate's done with Jesus. It says, when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but they made, or that he rather, uh, a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this person, see ye to it. Ever hear that? Well, I'm washing my hands of the matter. Where did that come from? The denial of Christ. Careful with that one. I wouldn't want to be affiliated with Pilate in any way, shape, or form. People use that phrase frequently. People use that phrase frequently. Here's one in the next, in the previous chapter, in chapter uh, 26, and in verse, uh, verse 48. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he, hold him fast. Kiss of death. Kiss of death. It's often used to, to indicate uh, uh, when there's some sort of act that leads to complete destruction, disaster, or failure. I've heard it used in some engineering sense, specifically with computers, where they talk about, you know, you're working on something and somebody does puts one plug the wrong way and it was like, or solders the wrong thing to the wrong part, and it's like kiss of death. And you're sitting there and you're watching... Thing catches on fire, busting out the fire extinguishers. That thing's gone. That thing's gone. Kiss of death. Where'd that come from? The betrayal of Christ. Man, these are getting heavy, aren't they? The last ones that I want to point out is this. Over in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, if you're familiar with that chapter, you know that it talks about an individual that went above and beyond to help another person that he had absolutely no obligation to help. And in verse 30, he says, a certain man went down from Jericho, uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, which was never supposed to be rebuilt, by the way, and fell among thieves, which uh, stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that by uh, that way, and uh, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, the Levite, when he saw him at that place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. Verse 33, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him, and bound his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and set him on his uh, own beast, and brought him in and in, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he had departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more when I come, I again I will repay thee. What was he? He's the good Samaritan. I remember when I started going through uh, training uh, for first aid and uh, medical assistance, I remember them saying, you know, uh, because there was a concern. One of the, one of the um, members of the class lifted up their hand and said, what happens if I kill the person? 
What happens if I'm doing CPR and I completely crush their chest and send a shard of bone right through their heart? We're like, well, that's dark. <laughs> and and uh, I remember the instructor saying, well, uh, that happens. You know, you, you've got to live with that. Maybe this is why you need to learn the right way to do it versus thinking maybe you know how to do it. Um, he said, but if that happens, you're, you're okay. You wouldn't be prosecuted for crime or murder or manslaughter. It's like, I wouldn't? He's like, well, no, no, no. It's, there's a law in place. And I remember him saying, it's a good Samaritan law. If you're acting and you're engaging and helping that person and you harm them by accident or you do something in such a way, they can't come back to you. Let's say you see somebody pass out in the rose hours over here and you know CPR and you run over and you grab a hold of them and you get their head tilted the right way and you're doing your, your, uh, chest compressions to, to, you know, to the BG staying alive. You know, doing that thing. And, uh, and as you're, you're going through that process and, uh, the guy revives it and he looks up at you and you're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, hey, I just saved your life. He goes, you idiot, I'm DNR. Do not resuscitate. <laughs> You're like, whoops. <laughs> Excuse me, do you want me to put my mouth, you put, yeah. <laughs> now that's murder. Yeah, that's, that, that's murder. You can't do that. Uh, he can't sue you. He can't sue you. He was probably sitting there going, oh, I'm going to heaven. And then he wakes up and he's like, what are you doing? Stop it. I see Jesus. You know, good Samaritan. It's a law. We take a look at this and these are just a few, you know, there's, there's, there's several more that you can find in scripture. As you read your Bible, you'll see, holy, hey, that sounds, that sounds familiar. That sounds like something that somebody has said. That sounds like a saying, a, a cliche or something that somebody says today. I dare say, these are not cliches. They have true meaning behind them. This is why I love the English language. This is why I love getting into the etymology of things. This is why I like looking at that. Because you begin to realize there's a lot behind what we say. A lot behind what we say. And even the unbeliever doesn't realize that this book is still behind a lot of what they say. They are without excuse. They are without excuse. Let's go ahead and just close with a word of prayer tonight, and we'll be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for this time. Thank you again, Lord, for just uh, taking a look at uh, just some simple things, just a simple study, Lord. I pray, Lord, it's been an encouragement to us, knowing how you've preserved your word and how it's even used today by many of people. Lord, I pray that we would take caution upon our words. We said uh, that uh, guard that you set upon our lips and our mouth. Watch what we say. That it would be pleasing unto you. Honoring unto you. Things wouldn't be just casually said, but they would be said for your honor, glory, and praise. Thank you for those that are here tonight, Lord. Pray you take us home safely and uh, be with us throughout this week. Lord, give us strength. Give us encouragement. Uh, Lord, may we be an encouragement and edification to others. Lord, may we pray for one another. Lord, may we lift each other up in 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 uh, in, in our day to day prayer life. And Lord, again, I just thank you for all that you've done for us, and thank you even just for giving us this opportunity to come tonight. 
and hear from you. And I thank you again for all of this and ask it in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.